0: As I have listened to so much of preaching through the years, I have seen that Christians are mostly, born-again Christians, mostly witness to the fact that Christ died for our sins. There's very little emphasis on the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. I want to show you two verses. In Romans chapter 1, it's important to know this truth. <clears throat> Romans chapter 1, and I hope you will be gripped by what you hear on this matter. Romans chapter 1, and uh, it refers to Jesus in verse 4. Declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness Jesus Christ our Lord a lot of things we see in that verse it's because there was total holiness in his entire life tempted as we are for 33 and a half years not even this a single sin in thought, word, deed, attitude, motive. You know how difficult it is to live free from sin even for one day. 33 and a half years, holiness, God raised him from the dead. That is the way by which God also demonstrated in verse 4 that he is the son of God. His death on the cross did not prove he is the son of God because the thieves also died on the cross. And to an outside observer, it looked all the same. But the fact that God raised him from the dead, which is n- and raised him from the dead, not like Lazarus and others were raised who died again, but the resurrection from the dead is different from Lazarus being raised from the dead and a couple of young boys raised from the dead in the Old Testament. The resurrection from the dead is never to die again like we will experience when Christ comes back. So it's that resurrection from the dead that made Jesus absolutely unique among all the human beings that ever lived on this earth. That's what distinguishes him from every other person, every other leader, every other religious leader, every other founder of any religion, any so-called God, Here was someone who walked on earth as a man and died in the eyes of everybody. He didn't die secretly somewhere, publicly, and rose from the dead, conquering man's greatest enemy. Man's conquered space, but he'll never conquer death. Never. Jesus conquered death, and we must never forget that. That is what makes our Savior unique in the world. There's no religion where man was raised from the dead. There's no leader. And so he stands out above everybody else. And that's why you read in Acts chapter 1, <clears throat> when the apostles gathered together just to prepare for the day of Pentecost. They, you know, one of their number, Judas Iscariot, had betrayed and had committed suicide. So they wanted to select one more. Of course, the way they did it, I I personally think was wrong to cast lots. Casting lots is an Old Testament method, but they were moving into the new covenant and they should have waited on the Lord, I feel. But they were not yet filled with the Spirit, so they could have made a mistake. Because I personally believe the 12th Apostle was supposed to uh, to be Paul, who came in later. But they selected somebody and what they said was, We need someone, you know, of all the people who accompanied us. This is Acts chapter 1, verse 21. It is necessary that among the men who accompanied us from the time Jesus, the Lord Jesus went in out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, one of these must become with us a witness, not of his crucifixion, of his resurrection. Hundreds of people saw his crucifixion. Unbelievers. But do you know the Bible says that he did not appear to a single unbeliever after his resurrection. I mean, humanly speaking, what a lust there would be to go and stand before Pilate and say, hey, you thought you got rid of me? Or to go before Caiaphas and say, hey, you thought you got rid of me? What a lust there is in us when somebody has harmed us and we have triumphed over that harm to sort of show off and say, you thought you could get rid of me? No, you couldn't. You thought you would suppress me? I've come up. Jesus was not at all interested in proving anything to any human being. Do you have that desire? To prove that you have triumphed over somebody. That you are better than someone. That God has borne witness to you. Let God do that. We are not to do that. Our calling is to be a witness to this resurrected Christ. And how shall we be? I mean today, those days they wanted one more person. But from the day of Pentecost onwards, we are all called to be witnesses of his resurrection. Our testimony when it's Jesus said in Acts 1 8, You shall be witnesses, my witnesses. And see, Acts 1 8. What is the purpose of the Holy Spirit coming upon us? Acts 1 8. And the Holy Spirit shall come upon you. You shall be my witnesses or witnesses unto me. Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. So I am not to be a witness of the fact Jesus died. Or he took your sins. All that is good. That is proclaiming the truth of the gospel. But I must be be a witness. I hope you understand the difference between bearing witness and being a witness. Bearing witness is, chap stands in a court as a witness and says, Yeah, I saw him do this or I heard him say that. That's bearing witness. But here it says, you must be my witnesses, which is not only by my words. By my life, I have to be a witness to the living Christ. I, my life must be a proof to the world around me that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. I mean, that's quite a challenge when you think of it, to be able to prove to the world around me that Christ is alive. And you, you and I need to ask ourselves, when people look at our lives, do they say, I mean... For example, when they see us merciful, forgiving others who hurt us and harm us in numerous ways and not speaking evil of them and doing good to those who hurt us and praying for those who persecute us and loving our enemies, they should say, Boy, this is, <laughs> this is not, not normal human behavior. There must be something. Christ must be alive because I, I see something in his life. My life must demonstrate That Jesus Christ is alive in me. My dear brothers and sisters, take that as a challenge for the rest of this year. Lord, I want to demonstrate that Christ is alive in me. The Christ who never sinned, I mean, I may not achieve that in a day, it takes years, but there's something in me that responds to people, that wants to respond to people in the way Jesus responded. It's not that we're not tempted. We must distinguish between temptation and sin. Don't condemn yourself if you're tempted. See what it says in James chapter 1. James 1, you've seen this before, but I need to repeat it. Verse 14, Everyone is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust it's like I mean if some wicked man entices you sisters saying come with me and he's very attractive and he's very rich you're tempted but you don't go with him so there's no conception because you don't go with him but the fact that you found him attractive does not mean conception took place A woman does not conceive just because she admires a man. No. It's when she gives herself to a man. So that's the example used here. That when you find a temptation attractive, that's not a sin. I ask myself, you ask yourself, when Eve saw the tree of knowledge of good and evil, did she find it attractive? Yes. God made it attractive. Did she sin? And she said, boy, what a beautiful tree, Adam. Wow, it's so attractive, It makes my mouth water. No sin. The moment she took it, that's when the sin came. The Lord did not say, you must not admire that tree. He said, don't eat from that tree. You need to, that's, I'm trying to illustrate the difference between temptation and sin because many people condemn themselves for being tempted. And they say, I'll never be free. Well, I, I agree, you'll never be free from temptation, but you can be free from sin. So, when that attraction, you respond to it and you do something about it. For example, a thought, a dirty thought flashed into your mind. What can you do about it? Supposing I tell you one day, you know, brothers, I was tempted to worship the devil. Oh, brother Zach, you were tempted to worship the devil? Yes, Jesus was also tempted to worship the devil. Is that a sin? Tell me, was Jesus tempted to worship the devil or not? It was a temptation. That came to his mind, fall down and worship me. He said, No. I'm taking that as an extreme example. I've never been tempted to worship the devil. That's all of sort of postgraduate temptations, I haven't got there. But even if you go to that extreme temptation, it's not a sin. You're tempted somewhere to do something. You don't do it, you don't sin. You even you reject it in your mind. For example, somebody provokes you tremendously and you're really tempted to get irritated with him, but you release him. In your mind, you release him. So what if you were tempted? You rejected it. In fact, that is a proof that Christ lives in you. Don't condemn yourself for being tempted. Jesus was tempted exactly as we are, but that temptation did not conceive in his mind. That means the anger didn't even come up in his mind. He did not say, boy, I've got to teach him a lesson. See, controlling our tongue is not anger. That is Buddhism, yoga. Keep your mouth shut. Anger is something within. You can get angry without opening your mouth. And that's a sin. Because you were tempted and you yielded it to in your mind. I mean, you know, you can sin in your thoughts or attitudes without changing your expression. Or saying anything. So I'm not talking about outward expression. Even inwardly. If you don't deal with anger inwardly, you will never overcome it. If you don't deal with lust, sexual lust inwardly, you will never overcome it. Don't be satisfied with having overcome pornography. I mean, that's the first step. If you're still defeated by pornography, you're a long way from overcoming sexual lust. And I don't know if you're... Ever get there if you don't start battling this now? You'll never get there. You won't get there in a hundred years unless you really say, "Lord, I'm going to finish with this." I've heard of people who the doctors say one more cigarette, and he says, "Look at the scan of your lungs; it's black because you've smoked so many cigarettes. One more cigarette, and you'll shorten your life by at least five years." Think of your children. They'll, they'll be without a father. And the man who is a chain smoker stops buying cigarettes. And you can't keep cigarettes in your drawer and say, I'm going to overcome it. No, he just throws them away because he's concerned about his children. He's concerned about extending his life for the sake of his family. But didn't he have that determination all along? Of course it was there, but there was not the threat of his life. So it's possible for us to overcome things. We just say we are weak. That's a lie. The devil keeps telling you, Oh, you're too weak, you're too weak. And even you receive Christ and he still tells you you're weak. You can't overcome. The main purpose of the gift of the Holy Spirit is not speaking in tongues. It's not to make us preachers. It's not to make us heal the sick. Let me tell you what Jesus said. The Spirit of God will come upon you. It can't be better than this. Acts 1.8. When the Spirit of God has come upon you, you shall be witnesses unto me. And what did we read later in the same Acts chapter 1? Witnesses of his resurrection. Or in other words, witnesses to the world that Jesus Christ is alive. That is the main purpose of being filled with the Holy Spirit. And don't let anybody tell you anything else. All the gifts are to serve other people. And the Holy Spirit produces character in us. But primarily my aim is not to show that I'm a mighty speaker in tongues or I'm a mighty this or I'm a mighty that. No. I want to be filled with the Spirit because I want to prove to the world around me that my Savior Jesus Christ is alive. He's alive in me, not just in heaven. And... The proof of that is you see this beautiful verse in Romans chapter five. We talk about being saved. We ask people, "Are you saved? Are you saved? Are you saved? Are you saved?" Or you say, "I'm saved." Well, here's something we saved from, saved by rather. Romans five and verse ten. Two verses I want you to see. Romans five, verse nine, and verse ten. You see two types of salvation. Romans five, verse nine, I'm saved. From the wrath of God. The wrath means the terrific anger of God against sin. We must realize that God hates sin. He's angry against sin. He's angry against your lust. He's angry against your pornography. He's angry against your losing your temper. He's angry against your telling lies. He's angry against your cheating. God's wrath. We haven't heard that enough. We play the fool with sin and thinking it's a light thing. No, God is not just hates sin, He's angry. Again, sin is the wrath of God and we are saved from the wrath of God through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. There is no other way. No other way. Secondly, verse 10. Okay, now we were reconciled through the death of His Son. Now, having been reconciled, we have become children of God, we have to be saved by His life. So there are two parts to the salvation, saved by his death, verse 9, and saved by his life. And I'll tell you this, most Christians I have met in my life, born again, really born again Christians, are saved only by his death, from the wrath of God. I meet very few Christians who are saved by his life. Where I see the life of Christ coming up in them, the life of humility and service and, you know, doing things in secret and hidden from the eyes of men and not seeking anything for themselves and who are quick to judge themselves and longing that other people will see Christ in them. So that's what I mean by being a witness of his resurrection, a longing that I will truly be a witness for Christ. So this is what it means. I'm trying to explain what it means to be a witness for Jesus Christ. I'm trying to explain what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Never be satisfied with anything less than this. If your speech does not reflect that Christ is living in you, I'll tell you what you should do. You should go, fall down on your bed and say, Lord have mercy on you. You should weep. There are many times I wept in my life, on my bed, because I failed the Lord during the day. Have you done that even once? Because you failed the Lord during the day, Lord I let you down. I'm so sorry. Even... I'll tell you, even if it's happened in my thoughts and nobody knew about it, I've gone before God and wept. Have you done that once in your life? Wept before God because you had a dirty thought? No? Then don't expect victory over sin ever. Because you're only interested in victory before human beings. And God sees you're a man pleaser. You want to have a good testimony before men. If you get angry before men, you lost your testimony. <gasps> oh, you go before God. I'm sorry, Lord. Sorry for what? Because you lost your testimony. Not because God is dishonored. If you were sorry because God is dishonored, you'd weep even if you have a dirty thought. That's a test. Whether you live before God's face or man's face, there are two types of sins. One where we lose our testimony before men and the other where we lose our testimony only before God. You know those sins, a wrong attitude to somebody which that person doesn't know. It's not even seen on your face. You're very clever to hide it. But you know it's a wrong attitude towards somebody you don't like. Or somebody who hurt you. Or perhaps somebody who hurt your children. And you have this perpetual wrong attitude towards that person. Nobody sees it. You don't lose your testimony. You don't weep before God. God sees you are a man pleaser. And that my brothers and sisters, I'm trying to explain why it's taking so long for some people to come to a life of victory. They don't live before God's face. Try living before God's face from now on and start repenting over the sins that nobody can see, which come only in your thoughts or your attitudes to people or your motives. Motive. Why you did something and a thought or You know, it comes to all of us. We are all tempted in the same way. And I show you, temptation is not sin. For example, you do something which is very good. And you are happy that other people saw it. Well, that's a temptation. And you got to fight it immediately. Lord, I'm tempted now that those people saw what I'm doing and they appreciate me. I want to hate it. If you take that attitude, God sees that you're really concerned to keep your conscience pure, to keep your heart absolutely pure, that I don't take any credit to myself because I'm supposed to do everything for the glory of God. And if I've done something good, it must be for the glory of God. And if somebody appreciates it and I'm, or I think somebody saw it and would think highly of me and I don't put that to death immediately, That is the moment, my brother, sister, when God is testing you to see whether you're serious about wanting the life of Christ in you. I'm telling you how I've been tempted. I'm tempted in the same way as you. Jesus was tempted in the same way as me. These thoughts come to all of us, all of us. Let me repeat. You do something and the thought comes to you, boy, this guy saw how well I did it or they saw what a humble person I am or they saw what a good person I am or or a generous person I am other people saw it and I have to reject it immediately Lord I don't want that I'm not supposed to touch your glory it's a terrible thing do all for the glory of God I say Lord please save me protect me I've done that numerous times I can't even count the number of times I feel like that and to me I believe that's the way I prove to God Lord I'm serious about victory i'm not serious about victory in the eyes of others i'm serious about victory in your eyes <clears throat> see this verse in second corinthians 7 i'm just giving you some practical advice on really coming to an overcoming life which is what we have preached in cfc for nearly 44 years now <clears throat> we're talking about perfecting holiness you see in the front of our pulpit let us press on to perfection perfection in what perfection in holiness how do we get there? Second Corinthians 7, verse 1. We have these wonderful promises from God, and the biggest promises that we can partake of His nature. And so, what should we do? <clears throat> I ask God, first of all, to cleanse me from my past sins. From my past sins, I cannot cleanse myself. God has to do that in the blood of Christ. But now, <clears throat> let us cleanse ourselves. Have you seen that? There are certain things only God can cleanse us from. That is all the guilt of my past sin, whether one sin or a million sins, the blood of Christ is needed to cleanse that. But from the filthiness of my flesh, from the filthiness of my spirit, which means my wrong attitudes, my wrong motives, I have to cleanse myself. Read it. Don't ask God to cleanse you. Ask him to give you power. But if you ask God to do that in you, <clears throat> you're asking to make you like a robot. Lord, make me like a robot. Program me that I'll never get angry. I'll never do anything wrong. You're actually asking God that you should not be tempted. Jesus was not a robot. He was tempted to turn the stones into bread. And he said, no. The devil said, fall down and worship me. He said, no jump off the temple and claim some promise no and he was tempted in every other way what way are you tempted in are you tempted to be proud are you tempted to seek honor are you tempted to be a little elated when people saw you doing something wonderful Jesus was also but he got alone before God and rejected it so let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit perfect holiness how in the fear of God, or we can say in the presence of God, I perfect my holiness. Not before men. There's only one way to perfect holiness, that I do it in the presence of God. I want to say to you, my dear brothers and sisters, that our pursuit of holiness does not get us where we should be, because we are doing so much before the eyes of men. We are very thankful that our Testimony before men has not been affected by that sin I commit in secret somewhere. By that wrong statement I made in my office where I made some money. Oh, thank God, nobody else knows about it. I'll tell you, if you think like that, you will not get victory in a hundred years. You can sit in CFC claiming, uh, claiming to be a part of a church that preaches victory. You will never get there. And you'll get a big surprise when Christ comes again. And he puts you along with the unbelievers because you're a hypocrite who tried to claim to be part of a good church and all along you were a hypocrite in your office and in your private life. Not because you failed, but you, because you repented only when your sin was known by others and you did not repent when your sin was known only by God. That's the test. That's what it means to perfect holiness in the fear of God. Take this seriously. Lord, I want to perfect holiness in your presence. Always, always, always. And that's why we have to be more careful about the words we speak in private where other believers don't see us, the thoughts we think when nobody sees us, the attitudes we have, the motives we have, the thoughts that come up <clears throat> when we've done something good. And if you're not judging ourselves all the time in these things, we're not perfecting holiness in the fear of God. I mean, it's like a student who's aiming for 100%. And who's grieved that he got only 99. Oh, I got only 99 there. Do you feel like that? Or do you feel, oh, I'm so much better than those other guys who get only 40 and 50 and 70. I never want to feel like that. But it's very easy for you to look around at other believers and say, well, thank God I'm not like them, I'm not like that. It's like the Pharisee, thank God I'm not like that sinner there. They get rejected by God. I say, Lord... I'm not like Jesus Christ. I'm ashamed that I'm not like Christ even after so many years. I'm not making any progress. Not talking about becoming like Christ. That'll happen when He comes again. My question is are you going from first standard to second standard? Are you going from second standard to third standard every year? Another year has begun now. Is it better for you now than last year? In your home? In your office? in those parts of your life that nobody sees, nobody in the church sees, and you know your family members won't sneak on you, and the people in the office don't come here to tell other people how you behave there. Those are the areas we must examine ourselves. Here in the church, how I behave is least important, because we are all well behaved here. I must always examine myself by, how do I behave in my place of work, How do I behave on the road when I'm driving on the road and people are irritating me? How do I behave at home with my children and my wife and husband? How do I behave with my fellow workers? How do I behave with taxi cab drivers and auto rickshaw drivers who try to cheat me or porters in the railway station? Those are the areas where I've always tried to judge myself. How do I behave with those people who in situations when nobody in the church sees me? Only God sees me or how the areas of my life which are purely in my thoughts and attitudes which only God sees. Lord, I want to live in repentance there. I urge you, my brothers and sisters, please take this seriously at least this year and say, Lord, that's going to be my primary area of concentration. It's like if your child is weak in mathematics but doing good in other subjects. What do you do? You send that child for tuition, not in the other subjects. He's okay there. Physics and chemistry is okay. Maths. So the Lord says, you need tuition, not in sinning publicly, that you're sinning in the front of the church, you don't need any tuition there. You're very careful not to do that. You need a little tuition in your sin in your attitudes and motives and thoughts and those careless way in which you speak in situations where nobody in the church sees. You need a lot of tuition in those areas. At home. You shall be witnesses, Jesus said, first of all in Jerusalem. Not in the uttermost parts of the earth. Sometimes people think like that. So the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you shall be my witnesses in the uttermost parts of the earth. No. He said you shall be witnesses in Jerusalem, right where you're living. And practically that means you'll be witnesses in your home first. And then in your surrounding area more and more and more. Uttermost parts of the earth is last. So if I'm not beginning in Jerusalem, which is in my home, what do you want to be filled with the Spirit for? I want to be filled with the Holy Spirit to be a witness in my home first, Jerusalem. That's my Jerusalem, that's your Jerusalem. So all of you, please seek God this year. Lord, make me a witness in Jerusalem first, which is my home. I want to be filled with the Spirit so that I can be a witness for Christ to my wife, to my children, to my husband, That's where I want to be filled with the Spirit for. And if you're not seeking that, I want to tell you in Jesus' name, you're a hypocrite. You're a first-rate hypocrite, only seeking to live before the face of men. And you'll never change till you repent of that. I believe you need to go before God and say, Lord, after so many years in CFC, I'm still seeking to live before the face of men. Forgive me this year. And let me take seriously this matter of perfecting holiness in the fear of God, in the presence of God. I want the life of Jesus to be manifest in me, not just for other people to see, but for my God to see when he sees where nobody else sees. Because we're not like the Old Testament. The Lord told Israel, you must be a witness to the nations. Agreed. That's good. I want to be a witness to the whole world. But I want to be a witness primarily to my Savior and to the Lord, to my Heavenly Father. Because we are today in a bridal relationship with Jesus Christ. And when we think of a bridal relationship with Jesus Christ, we think of the Song of Solomon, and I want to show you something from that. In Song of Solomon, it says, Please turn with me to Song of Solomon. <clears throat> uh, he's talking about the fragrance of his life in chapter 4. You know, the bride and the bridegroom speaks, it's, it's a wonderful chapter. If you ever get discouraged, Read Song of Solomon chapter 4 and see how the Lord loves you. How beautiful you are, my darling. This is, don't get, don't think of it as a husband-wife thing here. It is also, but in relation to the Lord appreciating me, even though I'm not imperfect. The Lord says, you're beautiful. He's talking about uh, the bridegroom appreciating the bride. You're altogether beautiful, verse 7, my darling. There's no blemish in you. How is that? Because we are justified in Christ. And then he goes on to say a number of things. I don't want to go into all those details. And then the bride responds. This is the verse I want you to see. In verse 16, the bride is responding to this tremendous appreciation. You should read those 15 verses first about the bridegroom appreciating the bride tremendously. How much the Lord longs after me. And then the bride says, O north wind, come. The north wind is a picture of the cold wind of trial, oppression, difficulty, rebuke from others and opposition and so many things, persecution, etc. Let it come. And then come wind of the south. That is, sometimes God allows us to face appreciation and praise from others, which is the opposite of persecution. And when bo- whether people persecute me, or whether people appreciate me, Lord, from my garden, that is from my heart, let a fragrance come out and the fragrance should spread abroad. For whom? For my beloved Lord, when he comes into his garden and smells that fragrance. It's not for the other people. No. It's for my Lord to smell that fragrance. When I'm when he looks into my life, it's a individual, personal relationship with Christ. I'll tell you honestly, I'm very thankful that the first book I studied after I was born again in 1959 and I know after I got baptized in 1961 was Song of Solomon. I didn't, I hadn't read the Bible fully before and there was one little, small little commentary I had Uh, from my dad's library on Song of Solomon. I picked it up and went onto the ship. That's the only book I had. And I think God in his sovereignty allowed me to have that as the only book I had other than the Bible. And so I studied the Song of Solomon. (laughs) And boy, I'm so thankful because there right at the beginning of my Christian life, the Lord was telling me, I want you to live in this personal relationship with me throughout your life and that has become after now I'm nearly converted nearly 60 years and I say it's become more and more precious to me my personal relationship with Jesus Christ is a million times more important to me than my ministry or anything I do and if it ever, if my ministry ever becomes more important to me than my relationship with Christ then I know that something is fundamentally wrong so that's what I say we are witnesses to the life of Christ and how shall this come By seeking to live in the presence of God. You see, for example, in John chapter 1. Sorry, 1 John chapter 1. In 1 John chapter 1. Now, whenever you read 1 John chapter 1, remember John is writing after seeing the condition of all the churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. He's 95 years old. All the other apostles have died. He's looked around. He's seen the wonderful churches Paul planted, all gone down spiritually spiritually the churches that Peter planted and the churches that he himself planted gone down spiritually. Some of the elders whom he appointed, elders whom John appointed like diatrophies you read in third epistle of John. He goes around saying, who's John? I'm the elder here. And if John sends somebody, he says, we don't want you. We're okay without you. That's the type of thing. He was facing situations like that. And he's concerned about writing to these people, to these believers. He says, remember, brothers and sisters, always remember what was more important right at the beginning. What is there right at the beginning? In the beginning there was God. No angels, no universe, only God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what did they have from the beginning? Two things. Life and fellowship. That's mentioned in verse 3. <clears throat> there was fellowship because there were three persons in one God. If there was only one person, there would be no fellowship. To me, that is one of the clearest proofs of the Trinity. So, <clears throat> what did God have there? Right in the beginning, no speaking in tongues or miracles or preaching or nothing. But there was life. There was fellowship. And the beginning... And that is what we have seen in Jesus. We heard it. When Jesus came to earth, we saw with our eyes, 1 John one one. we looked at it, we touched it, the word of life. Not like what Moses preached, where he came from the mountain and said, this is what the Lord says. And it says there was a glory on Moses' face. But Moses had to cover it because you read that in Second Corinthians 3. He covered it because the, underneath that veil, the glory was dimming, 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 dimming. So he had to cover it up. That's how our life is. When the glory is dimming in our life, we try to cover it up so that people don't see that the glory is dimming in our life. We try to cover up our home life. We try to cover up our office life. We try to cover up our private life because the glory we claim to have in the church is not visible. Like Moses, we had to put a veil over our face, veil over our life. Oh, don't, don't come too close to me. Don't, don't, don't Uh, look at the things I'm looking at on my smartphone. Don't come and see how I behave in my office. Don't come in too close in my house. Don't uh, listen at the window how I speak to my wife. I want a veil. That's old covenant. There was nothing like that in Jesus. It was a life was manifested and they could touch it, feel it consistent all the time. And he says, this is what we have proclaimed to you. This eternal life, verse 2, which was with the Father and manifested to us. He doesn't say Jesus came with a message. He manifested a life. In the little things he did, he manifested a life. In the way he washed even Judas Iscariot's feet, he manifested a life. In the way he rebuked his closest disciple, Peter saying, get behind me, Satan. Lord, aren't you afraid that he'll leave you and go away? Well, it's a test. It's a test. Will Peter go away? If he has to be rebuked, he has to be rebuked. Peter says, Lord, where shall we go? These are the words of eternal life. You said, get behind me, Satan. These are the words of eternal life. Blessed is the man or woman who can respond like that to rebuke. And I'll tell you, I doubt whether 99% of you can handle that. I'll tell you, I know most of you. I don't know whether you can handle rebuke like that. I've seen believers get so offended when they are corrected about some small thing, who are so happy when they are praised and appreciated. But small correction disturbs them. I say, where will they face things like, get behind me, Satan? Where will they feel that those are the words of eternal life? We are a long way, brothers and sisters. Yeah, that's the life that is manifested in Jesus. And I want it. I passionately want it. I want a life where the devil will not be able to shake me, where I'll be firm. It says in Ephesians 6 having overcome everything to stand, not overcome everything and then knocked out, exhausted. Having overcome everything, I must stand. That's how it must be. And that's the life which was manifested and that's the life that Jesus came. That's the purpose with which He gave the Holy Spirit that that same life can manifest through us that people who have come across us years later will say, well, I touched that life once in my life when I met that sister or that brother. I can't say I've seen it in all Christians, but I remember times in my life I met a brother or sister. He was different. He yeah, had the life of Christ. I'll tell you, as a young Christian, I used to—I think a few people I met in my life, not preachers primarily, but something of the life of Christ came through them, even in a small encounter with them. There was something of the life of Christ. Even if they, in the way they rebuked or corrected, there was something of the life of Christ there. That's our calling. You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in your home in your neighborhood, in your office, to the uttermost parts of the earth. Don't seek the uttermost parts of the earth. Don't seek the church pulpit to be a witness. No, 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 that's a little further along. Start with your home. Those of you who have a great desire to stand up here and preach, good. But start in your home, that's all I say. Don't start in the pulpit, no. You'll be a hypocrite, you'll be a first-class hypocrite if your goal is to preach to others, maybe in the weekday meetings, or get up and share in the weekday meetings. Start in Jerusalem, start in your home and say, Lord, I want the life of Christ to be manifested in my home in Jerusalem before I go to Judea, Samaria and the outermost parts of the earth. Let me go begin in the kindergarten, not jump to sixth standard when I join school. Let me go slowly. Like you tell a child, you go from kindergarten to first standard, second standard, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, are the outermost parts of the earth. You can get a PhD, sure. But start in the kindergarten. Start in your home. The home is our kindergarten. That's where you begin. If you fail in the kindergarten, what are you trying to go to first standard for? Why are you trying to be a witness in the church? If you're failing in your home, repent and say, Lord, I must, I must get 100% in my home. Or at least I must get pass marks. And where I failed, I want to correct it. I want to repent. There's nothing wrong in failure if you repent and set it right. Immediately God forgives you. But my question is, am I progressing? Am I progressing? Am I perfecting holiness in the fear of God? So he says here, this is the life that is manifested to us. And verse 3, this is what we see and have heard and we proclaim to you also. So that you also may have fellowship with us in this same life. You know, I'll tell you something. You can't have fellowship with somebody just because he says he's a CFC brother. That's a very low level of fellowship. Oh, I also come to CFC. Okay, that's friendship. I have friendship with a lot of people. But fellowship is based on, if, you find, if there's somebody who's got the life of Christ and somebody else who has got the life of Christ, there's fellowship there. You don't have to talk about it. It becomes fellowship because there's a person pursuing the life of Christ. And here I'm pursuing the life of Christ. We just connect immediately. That's blessed fellowship. And if you're not doing that in your private life, I'll tell you honestly, I will not have much fellowship with you. Not because I don't want to. I long to have fellowship with all of you. But it will not be possible. It will not be possible. We can have a superficial, hello, praise the Lord, good to see you, everything's okay. That's not fellowship. Fellowship will come only if you're pursuing the life of Christ in Jerusalem. And I'm pursuing the life of Christ in Jerusalem. And then we come together in Judea and we have fellowship. And Samaria, the outermost parts of the earth. And that's our aim, that you may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So how do we come to this life? <clears throat> Paul tells us in how it was in his case. In Galatians chapter 2, you know this very well-known verse, how the life of Christ was manifested in Paul. And he tells us, you know that famous phrase, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. That's what we've been speaking about the whole of this morning. How can I stop living? How can Christ live in me? I have to stop living. That's what he says here. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I, this capital I, Self. The central letter in the word sin is I. -I S-I-N. That capital I, which is the middle word in all sin, has to die. I die, and it's no longer I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I'm still living. And the flesh is still there. What I inherited from Adam is still there in me. But in this, it's no longer I. But Christ lives in me. It's not a doctrine I've got. And the life which I'm now living in the flesh, I live by faith or we can say, faith means dependence upon the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So that's how it is. I live in constant dependence on the Son of God. You've always heard me say that faith is like the branch that sits in the tree and keeps saying, I can do nothing. But I keep the channels in me open for the sap to flow from the tree into the branch. Faith is, to me, the best definition of faith is the branch depending on the tree. You can do nothing without me as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself. Without the tree, neither can I. And dear brothers, this is the life we must develop. A life of constant dependence on God all the time. And especially when you fail. We all have failed so many times in our life. And every time you fail, you go to God and say, Lord, why did I slip up there? Why did I fail there? If you don't ask yourself the reason for it, You can do two things. One, you can just say, Oh, I'm sorry, I sinned, Lord. Please forgive me. Cleanse me in in the blood of Jesus Christ. Move on. You should not move on. Go to step two. Step two is, Lord, why did I fail there? Step one is, Confess it. Ask God to forgive you. Good. Step two, if you don't go to step two, you'll you'll keep on getting defeated year after year. Step two, why did I fail? What was the cause? Eliminate those causes for example, you got a sudden stomach upset. It's happened to me a number of times. Then, because I travel here and there, I always ask, what is the cause? If I don't discover the cause, it'll keep on happening. If I discover the cause, I'm not saying it'll never happen, but at least I can protect myself to some extent that it gets reduced, the frequency of it. So whenever you sin... Confess it immediately, ask the Lord to forgive you, and then ask yourself, why did that happen? Why did I lust there? Why did I lose my temper? Why did I sign a false statement just for a little financial gain? Why did I do it? So if you ask yourself, you eliminate the cause, God will show you. He's really interested in your becoming Christ-like, where... You ask yourself, would Jesus have done that in that situation? Jesus was provoked so many times. You say Jesus was never rebuked like I'm rebuked. Hey, hang on. Let me read the Bible to you. Matthew 16. Have you read this? It's very surprising. Matthew 16. Peter, uh, Matthew 16, 22. Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Now, Jesus has the right to rebuke Peter. A father has a right to rebuke the son. The son has no right to rebuke the father. No. You know that. But here's the son rebuking the father. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. You know, I got so blessed by reading that. I saw something of the life of Jesus in that verse. I say, how Jesus made himself so equal to others that they treated him just like one of them. They didn't. He was not on a pedestal. I mean, if he had presented himself on a pedestal, uh, they would never have dared to rebuke him. But he made himself so equal with the others that they could speak freely to him and, uh, you know... Ignore him in the conversation and talk to somebody else. You know how a great man is there with us. We never let ignore him in the conversation. He's always the central person. Jesus wasn't like that. And we must not be like that either. We must make ourselves so equal. Even if you're 50, 60 years, 80 years older than other people. Make yourself equal to them. So that they don't treat you with awe and respect and all that. It's very important. I, I keep telling people to every home I go, listen, I'm your family member. Don't treat me like some Pentecostal pastor or some king or something. I'm not. I want to be at your level all the time. Be at the level of others, dear brothers and sisters, no matter how much God has used you or how much you're respected by others. Come down to their level. Jesus was at the level of people's feet. We have to come down to their level. We are not at their level. We are We've all got the spirit of Lucifer up there and our whole Christian life must be one of going down and down and down and down and down and down down, till we reach the feet of everybody else like Jesus was on the last day of his life on earth. Where was Jesus on the last day of his life on earth? At the feet of his disciples. Have you got there? Have you got there? I want to ask you. Have you got to the feet of your fellow believers, your brothers and sisters in this church? Do you really feel that you're ready to wash their feet and you're you you do not feel you're in any way superior to anyone <clears throat> and you don't want anyone to treat you in a special way or honor you in a special way and you detest it and hate it. That's the thing that came to me from that verse, Lord, people must feel free to correct me when they see I'm doing something wrong. Anybody? Brother Zach, no, we don't agree with you there. I love it. When I've heard that so many times in this church. And I say, Lord, thank you. I'm thankful when people can correct me in an email or correct me verbally or thank you. I never want to move from that position. I want to go still further down. That's how Jesus was. Do you see a challenge to be Christ-like in that verse? Or do you get offended? Do you know the number of people I've seen in CFC who get offended? I correct them something and they are silent for a few days. I've seen that among elders in this church. It's amazing. <clears throat> now I want to say I've never seen that in these four elders here. Ian and Charles and Stephen and John. My fellowship with them throughout their life has been unbroken. Let me testify to that. From the day I've known them till today, these four brothers, I've had wonderful fellowship with them, but that has not been the same with all elders. No. I just got to be honest, I'm not saying the others are bad in different places or here, but there's a difference. There is a difference. There are people who get offended when they are corrected. There are people who get disturbed. They won't, you see from their expression or from their silence that they're not very happy. Whereas if you appreciate them, ah, they're so happy and pleasant. Well, the worldly person is also very happy when you, if you tell him he's a wonderful guy. You ask yourself <clears throat> very simple test. This is the test I apply to myself. Apply it to yourself. When somebody appreciates you, really expresses appreciation to you, and then another day he rebukes you, your reaction and your attitude to him is exactly the same. Wonderful. God bless you, brother. You're going in the right direction. <clears throat> but if you find there's a difference, when somebody appreciated you and somebody corrected you, judge yourself. Don't get discouraged. Just judge yourself and say, Lord, i got to work out my salvation. i got to work out my salvation. My reaction to this brother was so different when he appreciated me compared to when he corrected me. Why is that? Am I perfect? That, am I perfect that I cannot be corrected? Have you become like God already? Like, there was a wife who said, my husband thinks there are only two people who are perfect. One is God, and the other is he himself. And he has some doubts about God also. (laughs) Imagine being like that. But that is the impression a number of husbands give. I can't be corrected. I'm perfect. You don't say that. You would never say that, because that's uh, proud to say that. But you give that impression, and there's a saying in English, your actions Speak louder than your words. A lot of people speak humble words, but their actions speak much louder than their words. And I've seen it with my own eyes through 43 years in this church. And when I see it, I don't judge them. I say, no, I'm not the judge. God is their judge. I judge myself. I say, Lord, am I possibly like that? See, if I can learn from the mistakes of others, I can go Get double promotion, like they say. I can go from first standard to third standard. Some schools, they give you a double promotion because you're so good. And if you learn only from your own mistakes, that's good. Then you get promotion once a year. But if you also learn from the mistakes you see in others, you'll get a double promotion. Don't you want that? Become like Christ a little quicker. Because you're not only learning from your own mistakes, you're also watching the mistakes of others. And say, oh Lord, I've got the same flesh. Let me learn something from that for myself. Sure. When you see somebody addicted to pornography on his smartphone, that young fellow, you say, Lord, i got the same flesh. I want to be extremely careful. That guy probably just indulged himself carelessly for so many weeks. He thought it was nothing, it's nothing, it's nothing, and he got got enslaved. Lord, maybe there's some area where I'm also getting enslaved. Maybe not in the same area, but I'm taking something lightly. Maybe it may not be sexual lust in your case. It may be anger. Because those are the two things Jesus spoke first in the Sermon on the Mount. Let me not judge him. I want to say to this, my dear brothers, if you are defeated by anger, please don't judge someone who's watching pornography. There is zero difference between you getting angry and that fellow watching pornography on his smartphone. Do you believe that? How many of you really believe that there is no difference between you who get angry and that fellow watching pornography every day on his smartphone. You think you're holy. Lord, I thank you then I'm not like other people watching pornography. I just get angry. Are you crazy? You read Matthew chapter 5 and Jesus spoke about anger before he spoke about sexual lust. You read those. Matthew 5 verse 22 through 30. Just read those eight, nine verses. Matthew 5, 22 through 30 and see which he spoke about first. And which he spoke about second. It was not pornography first. It was anger first. So don't ever say, Lord, I thank you, I don't watch pornography, I only get angry. Judge yourself. You can learn a lot. Say, Lord, I see something there in that person. Let me see what's wrong in myself. Let me learn a lesson. If you're re- I'm talking about really being really serious about progressing. You know how you know, students who are very serious about doing well in the examination, if they miss one day of class, supposing in school they're sick, they don't go to school that day. Do you know what they do? They go to the best student in the class and say, can I just copy your notes, what the teachers taught yesterday? And they sit down with him and just copy those notes. They are so serious to learn one day of class they missed. Most students, they're careless. Ah, oh, who's bothered about what the teacher taught yesterday? I had a good day yesterday. I was off school. Those are the people who never learn anything because they never learn anything. They're not eager to move on. And if God sees that you're eager to move on in your Christian life and really manifest the life of Jesus in every area of your life, I guarantee he will help you. But he won't do it if you're not willing to say, Lord, I want to cooperate with you in this. Okay, one last verse, Philippians in chapter 2. It says, let me read it like this, Philippians 2. Verse 12 and 13. Dear brothers, the last part of verse 12 and the first part of verse 13. That's what I'm reading. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling because God is working in you to make you desire to do His will and give you the ability to do His will. God is working in you to give you a passion to be like Jesus Christ. And God is working in you to give you the power to be like Jesus Christ. Now you do your part. By what God is working in, verse 13, you work it out. Verse 12. Don't say, Lord, do it all. Then you're a robot. Program me, Lord, that I will just move like a robot and always say the right things and do the right thing. I don't want to be a robot. and God doesn't want robots. He's got enough robots and all the stars... You know, the stars are like robots programmed in thousands of years. They've never disobeyed God for one second. All the trees, the plants, they don't disobey God. You plant a particular seed, the same crop will come up. Not something else. You can't plant plant potatoes and get tomatoes. It never happens. It's never happened in history. They obey God 100%. Disobedience is found wherever people have free will but those tomatoes and potatoes can't become children of god because they don't have a free will those planets cannot become a children of god because they don't have a free will it's a robot so don't say lord do it all in me he won't do it all in you because then he let you let him make you like the stars and the trees just automatically obeying no he says you work it out and the thing that has made somebody else spiritual and left you carnal it's because he worked out. God was working in both of you, but he worked it out and you didn't work it out. That's the thing that makes difference between believers. God works in every one of us. But some people are working it out every day. They are the other ones who progress. Like Paul said, I am crucified with Christ, so I choose that death to myself every day. I will not allow self to sit on the throne of my heart at any time. Christ will always be on the throne of my heart and the test comes, I'll tell you when people provoke you when they rebuke you when they cheat you when they speak evil of you when they speak evil of your children you know how you decide whether self is sitting on the throne of your heart or you're going to dethrone self and say Christ is going to sit there I am going to react like Jesus would react in this situation you have to make that choice But if you ignore it, oh, nobody's watching me. You'll be a hypocrite till the end of your life. And you'll never progress, even if you sit another 40 years in CFC. I'll tell you that. Dear brothers and sisters, we have started a new year. Christ is coming back soon. Please, please give up your old ways and say, Lord, I want to live before your face from this year onwards. I want to begin my life in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. In my home, I want to die to myself and in my office and on the roads and especially when nobody who knows me is watching me. In my thoughts, and my attitudes, I want Christ to rule and not myself. I'll be tempted, I know that, and I want to be quick to reject temptation. Give me the power of your spirit so that I can be a witness to the life of Christ in me, a witness to the fact that Jesus is alive. How do I prove that? By my life. That Jesus is alive in me through the Holy Spirit. And I believe He wants to manifest that in every one of us. And then we can say the fellowship between us will become glorious. Because life must come first, as we saw in 1 John 1, and then fellowship. Even the fellowship between you and your wife or you and your husband... Can become better only if both of you individually pursue the life of Christ. And which means self must go to death. May God help us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, it's a fantastic calling to manifest the life of Jesus Christ. Not just improved human life. You know that you didn't come to improve people's character. You came to kill the self and make the life of Christ replace that life of the flesh. We want that, Lord. I believe there are many here who want it. And we pray that we shall experience more of that as we work out what you're working in, as we say no to self day by day in the power of the Holy Spirit, as we through the Spirit put to death the deeds of the body so that we can live. Help us, Lord, each one. I believe there are many sincere people and I believe that the fellowship between us will become glorious as each of us do this individually. And that's your desire that we might become one body. Thank you for hearing us in Jesus' name. Amen.